0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery.
1: Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. episode of Inside COVID-19, we look at an important scientific breakthrough in the early treatment of COVID-19. We speak to Professor Mona Bufferdell of the University of Oxford's Nuffield Department of Medicine about how a medication commonly used to treat asthma appears to significantly reduce the need for urgent care and hospitalisation in people with COVID-19. And we hear from our partners at Bloomberg about an app that can use a person's voice to detect early symptoms of COVID-19. Dr. David Liu, CEO of Sondi Health, shares what vocal biomarkers can tell us about respiratory illness. First, the COVID-19 news, making world headlines.
0: Inside COVID-19, from Biz News.
1: Just under 2.5 million people are reported as having died of COVID-19 worldwide. Nearly 108 million people have tested positive for the disease. The United States has been the hardest hit with just under 472,000 people dying of COVID-19. Brazil has the second-highest death rate, reporting about 275,000. More than 47,000 people are reported as having died in South Africa. A World Health Organization panel has recommended that AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine be administered to all adults over 18, paving the way to speed up inoculations in developing countries. This is according to Bloomberg, which says the recommendation may encourage more countries to use the vaccine broadly. This is after some European Union members advised against giving it to the elderly because of insufficient trial data. The COVID-19 vaccine made by Johnson & Johnson is still not approved for use in South Africa, but by next week there are expected to be enough of the single-dose shots in the country to inoculate 80,000 people, Business Day reports. Meanwhile, Health Minister William Kese has announced the arrival of the batches to be drawn from research stock, but has not said how many would be available. In other news involving vaccines in South Africa, the country is trying to sell or swap the 1 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccines already in the country, as well as the further 500,000 doses due for delivery. The Health Minister says countries are lining up to buy the doses. South Africa has seen about 138,000 more deaths than in a normal year since the start of the pandemic. That is according to the South African Medical Research Council, which says that the rate has reached the equivalent of 485 excess deaths per 100,000. This in turn suggests that COVID may have killed 1 in 300 people in the Eastern Cape, in one of the worst death rates in the world. Data shows that excess deaths started to subside in late January after spiking in late December. Business Insider reports that Belgium is the worst affected country per capita in the world, seeing 188 deaths per 100,000, followed by Slovenia at 187 and the UK at 176. The strain first identified in South Africa late last year has now been identified in 19 countries, and most of those are linked to travel. While community transmission in Europe is not yet widespread, the variant has been increasingly linked to outbreaks in communities, says the World Health Organization. Ireland's government is likely to maintain most of the current virus restrictions until early April at least, says Bloomberg. It quotes Prime Minister Michael Martin. While the government will prioritise reopening schools and construction, the bulk of the lockdown that has been in place since Christmas will be retained, he said. Travellers arriving from more countries may be required to quarantine on arriving in Ireland. German Chancellor Angela Merkel has warned that aggressive coronavirus mutations will gain the upper hand in Germany – threatening to destroy progress made in containing the pandemic. Europe's largest economy needs to maintain tight controls, even as contagion rates steadily decline and immunisations slowly ramp up, Merkel said in a speech to Parliament in Berlin. London's Heathrow Airport has urged the British government to set out a strategy for resuming flights following a tightening of travel curbs that it says has essentially shut down travel, requiring two COVID-19 tests for all arrivals along with 10 days of quarantine that some must spend in a hotel, means the UK border is effectively closed, Heathrow authorities said in a statement on Thursday. Britain's three pandemic lockdowns have cost retailers that have been ordered to close about £22 billion in lost sales. In a sign of the mounting toll COVID-19 is taking on one of the country's biggest employment sectors, the British Retail Consortium says 2020 was the worst year on record, with in-store non-food sales declining by about 24%. A cluster of the virulent UK strain of coronavirus in Australia rose to eight on Thursday, with authorities saying it started in a Melbourne quarantine hotel by a person who used a nebulizer to treat a health condition. The medical device, which vaporises medication or liquid, also worked to spread the virus through mist suspended in the air with very, very fine aerosolized particles, said Victoria State Chief Health Officer Brett Sutton. This was how the virus was carried out of the hotel room into the corridor where staff walking the halls were exposed, he said. Africa has done better at managing the pandemic, a leading tropical disease specialist said at a World Health Organization conference on Thursday. Dr Peter Peart of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine also warned that the worldwide rollout of effective vaccines across all countries would become one of the biggest geopolitical issues of our time.
0: We're facing not only a new situation, spread of uh Uh, of the virus, of the coronavirus, but also of new so-called variants. Now, viruses mutate. That's what they do to adapt, to survive. And um, when millions of people carrying the virus, it's unavoidable that there will be new variants and so coming up. And that's a new challenge, not only for Africa, but for everywhere. And and the effectiveness of vaccines, of course, is a big issue. But the truth is also that um, as long as one country... In the world is affected by COVID-19, no country is safe. And that is really important. So having access to vaccines uh, in Africa and elsewhere is not only a matter of, um, let's say, of moral, a moral issue, of solidarity, but it's an imperative for everybody. Um, you know, until uh, Africans get the vaccinations they, they need, the whole world will suffer this is going to become one of the big geopolitical issues of our time access to vaccination and at the moment is the scarcity there are not there are contracts uh, including for africa uh, through covax and the african union of uh, hundreds of millions of vaccine doses however the production the manufacturing is lagging behind and scarcity is a big enemy of equity and uh, so we need to really uh, invest more in manufacturing, including in manufacturing that can happen in Africa. Uh, let's not forget that, for example, one of the four yellow fever vaccines that are approved and are used in the world is made in Africa, is made in Senegal, um, you know, by Institute Pasteur. So it is possible to do this, um, but that requires more, um, you know, investments.
1: Ivermectin has been approved for limited use in South Africa as a treatment for COVID-19 But it's in short supply. A black market has developed and there are reports of people using veterinary versions. Dennis Hancock, President and CEO of Mountain Valley MD, a company listed on the Toronto and Frankfurt stock exchanges, has told BizNews that it is confident it will have new versions that are highly effective and low cost, available in Africa before the end of the year. Mountain Valley MD is involved in a human trial to test its ivermectin that uses a patented method to make it more soluble in the treatment of COVID-19, and it says it will prioritize Africa for rollout.
2: So ivermectin is broadly distributed for human use in a tablet form. So it's an oral dissolved tablet in usually in increments of three milligram doses. And what's, what's unique about ivermectin uh, there's also, it was originally a, a husbandry animal category drug, so it's it's huge in veterinarian side as its anti-parasitic properties are very uh, strong and proven. It's a wonder drug that was invented, you know, back in the 80s, and it's had you know billions of doses administered globally, so its safety data is well documented. And what we're seeing now is, of course, a shrinking supply of ivermectin given. the the parallel trials that are coming online. Africa for sure is our number one focus. When we look at how ivermectin can help, we start from where, and even again, our work in cold chain distribution and malaria and all of that is all driven to the, starting with the least advantaged communities in the world. And um, it's just a sad reality that even the electricity infrastructure in 90% of third world nations, they just don't exist. So you have massive cold chain problems. Vaccine distribution, I'm very familiar with a stat that's, you know, over thirty-five billion dollars a year of vaccines just thrown out. Wasted as it falls out of cold chain, so you have these difficult vaccines that are hard to make and produce in the volumes, and then you have a cold chain distribution network. Maybe to no one's fault, it just is just a reality. By the time something gets to the the, the end user in the most disadvantaged communities, fortunately, it's a hit and miss, and a lot of spoilage. Africa is number one on our list before on how do you distribute something uh, that effectively.
1: For more on developments using ivermectin to treat COVID 19, listen to the full interview with Dennis Hancock on BizNews Radio or head to biznews.com where you can find the key highlights.
0: Inside COVID 19 from BizNews.
1: In an important medical discovery, researchers at the University of Oxford have found that inhaled budesonide given to patients with COVID-19 within seven days of the onset of symptoms has reduced recovery time. Budesonide is a corticosteroid used in the long-term management of asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Professor Mona Baffadel of the University of Oxford's Nuffield Department of Medicine spoke to me, Jackie Cameron of BizNews, about the results of a medical trial on budesonide and how she realized the drug could be an effective treatment against covid-19
0: inside covid-19 from biz news
1: professor please tell us about the key findings of your study
3: so we used a uh, very well known inhaled corticosteroid called budesonide in patients with very early symptoms of coronavirus so within 7 days of their symptom onset we put allocated people into two groups one receiving uh, inhaled Budesonide and the other just standard care, which was usual care for us, which included daily monitoring for both treatment groups. Essentially, what we found was that the inhaled Budesonide group of participants seemed to have fewer deterioration events, which either required them to go to see their GP and then go on to the emergency room or even get hospitalised compared to those in the usual care arm. And we also found that symptom onset, so clinical recovery, as described by the uh, the patient, was much quicker in the budesonide arm. Uh, and along those lines, we also found that fever was markedly less, and uh, symptoms by measuring on a questionnaire was markedly less also for the duration of the study. So both the primary and the secondary endpoints of the study were seemed to suggest that budesonide was favourable for early COVID uh, infection.
1: Why did you pick this specific medication to test?
3: Yeah, so that's a, a really very important question. So I'm a respiratory physician by heart and training, um, and I look after lots of patients with both asthma and COPD. And early on in the COVID pandemic, reports coming out of China and Italy and the States, so early reports from around February, seemed to show that actually people who were getting hospitalized with coronavirus infection were not those with chronic respiratory illnesses, which is a puzzle for us because we recognise as respiratory doctors that patients with chronic respiratory illnesses usually do suffer the, the greatest with respiratory viruses. So that interesting point alone made me think about how maybe the common thread between these occurrences again early back in in February time was related to the actual treatment that patients with asthma and COPD for example commonly take so that was the one of the main indications and, and drivers for that so does
1: this mean that asthmatics are actually less susceptible To succumbing to COVID-19?
3: So the early report suggested that asthma wasn't a frequent comorbidity but obviously as we've had more and more data different things are coming through in terms of epidemiological studies, in terms of database trawling but I guess in our point of view this was an early and mild infection population And the hypothesis would be that if it could help treat early COVID infection, then it may also protect those who have some lung problems. we ought to say is that this population only looked at those who were not previously on an inhaled corticosteroid
1: okay so these are people that we've given this for the first time actually. yes
3: yes so these are people that are not usually on an inhaled corticosteroid so the healthy volunteer in fact do you think all doctors should implement
1: this treatment early where there's a positive diagnosis
3: i think the study suggests that it may work and i will say that the limitations of the study are that it is a small study and these are certainly the early and milder population What's really important to know is that there are lots of other studies coming through now that are also going to be examining the effect of inhaled corticosteroids in COVID-19 infection. And um, I know that there are at least five or six registered trials on clinicaltrials.gov that are happening all around the world, which are looking at a similar research questions to our group. So if if indeed The other studies also show similar findings and I think the respiratory, the scientific and the political community could look at this and and, uh, perhaps plan a little bit more. Do you think that all of us should use
1: this bedesonide as a preventative measure, particularly in countries where it's taking a long time for the COVID-19 vaccine to be rolled out?
3: So there's no indication that this would work as a preventative measure because we haven't studied that. So I can't make much kind of comment on that what I would say is that the study suggests that it could possibly work I mean it is a a relatively safe uh, well-studied and widely available medicine so if indeed the evidence is even more suggestive from all of the other studies too then I think that that might be quite important for the whole global community Tell us a bit more about your thinking on the treatment
1: of long COVID because we're seeing a lot of information coming out that the long COVID sufferers really have a a terrible time.
3: So our study duration was only 28 days. It was a short study duration. Let's bear in mind that that was because back in February when the study was conceived and applications were made for for in March 2020, we didn't know about long COVID. None of us had even heard of it. So it's, it's hard to extrapolate from that. I think it's really important to think about treatment of early COVID, so early infection, uh, because one would always hypothesise that if you treat something early, then you may be able to stop it in its tracks. And I guess that's what the point of this study was, was to see if there is a potential medicine that can help stop early infection progress. And that progression may be to deterioration, but it also may be to, to progression of long COVID, for example. So I think what will be really important is to see what happens in, in studies that are t- maybe assessing this much later. Our study did show that certainly at day 14 and day 28, so at the end of the study, the number of people with persistent symptoms at four weeks. Uh, were fewer in the budesonide arm compared to the usual care arm, which wasn't a a secondary outcome, but it was an interesting finding and certainly not powered in our study to look at that. Very interesting. Now, which symptoms
1: should people be looking out for? Because we, we see changes to the list of symptoms that come out from time to time and some of the variants seem to have slightly different symptoms. Which symptoms do you think a GP who's listening to this interesting finding from your research should be thinking about? in terms of maybe giving somebody bedecinide?
3: So our study at the time, um, the, the UK has the standard symptoms for what a COVID definition was. So we had a new onset of fever, a new onset of a cough. And we also had anosmia at the time of the study at start. So they were the three features that we had. So we asked people who had early symptoms suggestive of COVID and we randomised them at that point. Now we did not need a positive swab to enter the study, but what we found was that ninety four percent of our subjects were indeed positive for coronavirus um, at a at a swab uh, that we had taken ourselves. I, I think individuals across nations are very good at detecting new onset of symptoms for this coronavirus pandemic, I think. So I guess advice to GP would be whatever is the symptoms that are kind of established within the individual countries, because I agree with you, symptoms are different perhaps within nations and within variants.
1: Now, this is a really important medical discovery because you say this is quite a common medication.
3: Is it an expensive
1: medication? No,
3: no. It's not an expensive medication. And in fact, I think budesonide is on the list of WHO medicines for treatment of, of things like asthma. So it is an inexpensive medicine. And what's next for you in this
1: particular research project?
3: So in the particular research project, it's currently at peer review. We're obviously quite excited by the results that come through from the other inhaled corticosteroid studies. We are also examining in the laboratory what the actual inflammatory pattern was with regard to the use of this medicine in our patient population. And we're also examining in the laboratory the effect of virus replication within cells, that are in a lab. So grown up cells, so kind of experimental analysis. So there's a few things coming through from this project, which I think will, again, as a scientist, it's really important to try and both deliver a mechanism uh, and a a therapeutic target, really. So I think it will be nice to see if we can link, link everything together.
1: And before we close off here, how does it work to reduce the recovery time? Do you know how the medication is actually working to counteract the COVID-19? No,
3: so we don't really know from our data, but previous experimental lab data has shown that inhaled corticosteroids as a form of drug do seem to reduce viral replication within the epithelial cells. Now, our study doesn't examine epithelial cells because we, we, we didn't do that, and that would be quite an invasive procedure. But uh, laboratory studies, so models of infection in the epithelial cells within your lungs, uh, are suggestive that the inhaled corticosteroid subgroup of medicines do reduce the viral replication. And that in itself may be the hint as to why it might stop progression within the lungs and therefore furthering onset of symptoms.
1: Next, David Liu, CEO of Sundi Health, tells health reporter Michelle Fay-Cortez about how changes to our voice, which are beyond human detection,
4: can be picked up by an app for early detection of COVID-19. This app is looking for vocal biomarkers, indications that you might be actively infected with coronavirus and that the illness could be having an impact on your voice. It is something that is relatively easy to use. It's something that's being adopted by companies and schools and other outlets as a way to get an early heads up on potential risk. David Liu is the CEO of SondHealth, Health, and he laid out how it works for us.
5: SON One is a app based product that can be downloaded from any smartphone. With that that app, you're able to record six seconds of voice, and we can give you then a reading on. Uh, your risk for having symptoms of respiratory disease like COVID-19.
6: In terms of how this app can actually detect whether or not you have COVID-19 or another respiratory illness, I mean, how exactly is it doing that through your voice?
4: Your voice is an integral part of you. And you know, from your own personal experience, listening to your loved ones and people that you know well, sometimes you can tell if somebody is not feeling great, if there might be something going on with them in terms of illness or perhaps anxiety or stress. We're talking about things like the, the patterns and the rhythms, the vocal intonation, any kind of variation in that process is what they're looking for. And as you do it over and over again, the app can get better at knowing your own individual patterns, comparing that to yourself and to other people. David laid out for us the way that it works.
5: Biomarkers are any any information uh, that is um, given off by the body. Uh, could be your your come from blood, could be come from saliva, your your heart rate. Um, these are signals that are coming from your body that can be measured, right, and can be recorded. And so, vocal biomarkers. Our field that, that has uh, really begun to, to grow and explode in the last five years, I would say. So it's fairly new when used in, in the health context. Uh, our company, Sun, has, has already uh, launched vo- vocal biomarkers for detection of mental health conditions, such as depression and now respiratory illness. There are other companies in this space that have also, uh, used vocal biomarkers for other health conditions.
6: So what is the, the science or, you know, the, the research that underpins this app? How have they constructed a way that something on your phone can detect symptoms of an illness or even COVID-19?
4: There has been some research done on this in order to determine how effective the approach is, but of course, it's important to realize this isn't something that's approved by the Food and Drug Administration, and your insurer isn't going to pay for it, but it is an early indicator of potential danger. You can think of it kind of like a a thermometer or your mom putting her hand on your forehead to see if there's something going on with a layer of science and technology on top of that really drilling down into the details.
5: You need to have a lot of experience and a lot of data to have been, to, and to have studied this data, voice data that is health condition labeled, meaning we have now over a million voice samples that we've collected and studied, must have confirmed uh, labels stating that this person had the disease or the, uh, the health condition. And so they've been diagnosed with that condition and then we study their voice from there. We also study people's voices who are completely healthy, and we compare those those voices. When you have that large of a volume of, of data, you're then able to look at different groups of people, men, women. Uh, you're able to look at different ages of people, different devices. So many things come into consideration when you're analyzing voice. When we're looking at different uh, health conditions, then we can zero in, for example, on respiratory disease or even depression, we can zero in on the vocal features that are most sensitive to change when somebody displays a symptom of that disease. And again, we are not diagnosing for disease. We are simply monitoring and detecting the change in your voice, vocal features that are not able to be picked up by the human ear, such as prosody, such as tonality, um, even breaks in speech, Um, There are so many of these vocal features that we do examine and put into our machine learning models that help us then predict based upon the data who might have uh, who has a higher probability of having these symptoms of disease versus people who are completely fine.
6: Just to be clear, this is something that can only pick up symptoms, when you're already manifesting symptoms of COVID-19 or another respiratory illness, this isn't something that
4: could pick up whether or not you have COVID-19 if you happen to be asymptomatic. It's not a diagnostic. It doesn't tell you that you are definitively infected with coronavirus, but it is another layer, another indicator that could help people determine if they are at risk. The company is not claiming That it is something that should be used in order to determine who is safe for high-risk situations in terms of, you know, visiting friends and family or going to a nursing home, flying, that sort of a thing. But it is another piece of the puzzle. You know,
6: we've been focusing on COVID-19, but what else can these types of apps like Sond1 detect using these vocal biomarkers?
4: Previous research has looked at vocal biomarkers for indications of other potential health conditions, most specifically mental health issues like anxiety and depression. Those are areas where we do get a lot of change that happens that comes through your voice. Sometimes looking intently at that particular piece can give you insight into how you're feeling and where your health is going. I'm wondering about some of the potential risks or problems. I mean,
6: being able to speak into your phone and it tell you whether or not you have symptoms of either COVID-19 or just a respiratory illness could be very useful. But what are the risks, say, I'm thinking of um, in terms of either patient privacy or just misdiagnosis?
4: Privacy and misdiagnosis are actually critical issues, especially in this period of time that we're in right now. Everyone is talking about privacy across every platform as we're all interacting with each other online, but there are absolutely issues about where this information is going, especially because in many cases, it's employers or other organizations that are gathering this information. There is room for things to go sideways.
6: Now, Michelle, you've actually had the opportunity to try out Sond1 for yourself.
4: Walk us through what the process is of, of using the app. So I downloaded the app this morning and I used a key that the company gave me, full disclosure. And I answered a couple of questions, including my email address, my gender, my birth date. And now I'm ready to give it a shot. All right. Walk us through, you know, submitting a vocal sample. Here we go. So I'm looking at a screen. It says Sound 1. Tap here to get started. Inside, concentric, white circles. It's loading. You have a questionnaire and a voice activity to complete. My voice does feel a little scratchy today, so we'll see how that goes. I definitely feel healthy though, and I have been pretty much in my basement for the last month, so I don't think I'm high risk here. In this activity, I want you to take a breath and hold the vowel sound, ah, like in the word father. Please hold that sound for six seconds or until you run out of breath. Let's begin. Ah, I got it done. That was a little bit harder than I thought. Okay, my health score. I'm low risk, I'm a 50. Means that today's score is in your normal range. And now I'm getting my screening results. Sounds like you're feeling okay, watch for COVID-19 symptoms and call your medical provider if any symptoms develop. Follow your local and state public health guidelines to keep yourself and others safe. So it occurs to me, Laura, that part of the benefit of a screening like this is that you just literally have somebody every day walking through the process of thinking about how they're feeling. Do I feel hot? Did I sleep poorly? Am I losing my sense of taste or smell? Those are things we should all be asking ourselves, but I don't know that we do it intentionally every day. So if you do have an app that's walking you through this, that could be a big part of the benefit right there, regardless of what you learn from your vocal biomarkers.
1: And that brings to a close your Inside COVID-19 podcast for this week. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News.
0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery.